Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, Boy Wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. host, Stella, and I'm Kimberly Rockmore, your Watchtower News Desk Correspondent, and this is Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, Episode 33, for January MMXII. Episode 33 is brought to you by this public service announcement. See ya! a scissor. Keep up a steady rhythm. Now cup your hands downward and move them in a figure eight motion. I'm treading water. You got it. Never play around water alone. Now I know. And no one is half the battle. G.I. Joe! Batgirl to Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are March's Batgirl No. 8 and Birds of Prey No. 8, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. 
Well, welcome back, friends, from that three-episode uh, anniversary spectacular. To be honest, I'm sorry you're probably frustrated with the weird numbering system. It was 32, 32.5, and then 32.75. And honestly, I probably should have just went 32, 33, and 34. I think the main reason I wanted to keep it, you know, the 32, like all in the 32 group, was basically just to let you know that it's all... <laughs> basically one large episode but I don't know what I was thinking so is this technically episode 35 probably but hey here we are um it's great to be back and uh I guess you may or may not be disappointed that it's just me with you guys but I am very happy to to welcome Kimberly Rockmore with me and you know, it's been a while since Kim has been on, and I know that she's having the time of her life with her new uh, steady boyfriend, my good friend Josh Bertoni, but, you know, it is, it's great, it's great to have her back, and I just want to get into this episode because I feel like it is going to be huge. There's about seven issues to get through, maybe eight if you think about, if I decide to put in Nightwing, that's going to be off the off the cuff if I end up putting that in there. But let's just get started. Uh, Kimberly, what kind of exciting things do we have going on at the Watch Hour right now? Well, Stella, you know, it really is great to be back. I, I am having the time of my life. I love visiting Florida, but it is tough going back and forth, obviously, because I have things to do when I work at NPR. Um, so some of the things right off... Uh, Dwayne Swazinski, Mr. Dwayne Swazinski, writer, current writer of Birds of Prey, has graciously agreed to do an interview with Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. He has also graciously agreed to answer your questions. So that's what I need from you, basically, is what do you want to know? What would you like answered from Dwayne Swazinski? So, of course, you can write in uh, to Stella at Batgirl to Oracle at gmail.com uh, there's already a post on the website backgirltooracle.net uh, to which you can post a reply or you can go to either of the two websites that have forums for Backgirl to Oracle on the spidermancrawlspace.com or on the batmanuniverse.net let's just say that this is going to be an exciting interview and we are really happy that he has agreed and we are both looking forward to whatever answers he he gives us certainly Next up, we have, uh, uh, graciously, again, we, we found out from a listener that there is a petition going on right now for Batgirl downloadable content for Batman Arkham City. And I'll get to that email later in this hour. But definitely visit my Batgirl to Oracle, or our, really, our Batgirl to Oracle.net for details, especially the link uh, in which to get to that particular thread on the Arkham City forum. Next up, we have Batman Chess Set. Have you guys seen this wonderful bit of merchandise? Yes. If you go to eaglemoss.com slash DC dash chess slash pieces, you will actually see these different chess pieces. Now, you can order through Eagle Moss, and it's really a subscription. Or, if you're going through a particular site, you can also order these pieces individually. Now, here's the rundown of the pieces that are given. The White Knight is Batman. The White Bishop is Robin. The Black King is Joker. 
The White Pawn is Commissioner Gordon. The Black Knight is Two-Face. The White Queen is Catwoman. Oh boy. The Black Pawn is Red Hood. The Black Pawn is Hush. The Black Knight is Penguin. The White Pawn is Black Canary. The Black Bishop is Ra's al Ghul. The White Pawn is Katana. The Black Pawn is Black Mask. The White Knight is Red Robin. The Black Pawn is Mr. Freeze. The White Pawn is Oracle. The Black Queen is Holly Quinn. The White Pawn is Batmite. The Black Bishop is Riddler. The White Rook is Huntress. The Black Rook is Manbat. The White Knight is Batgirl. And no, because we have Oracle, it is not actually Stephanie Brown. But the DC new version of Barbara Gordon as Batgirl. The Black Pawn is Ventriloquist. The White Bishop is Nightwing. The Black Pawn is Scarecrow. The White Pawn is The Question. The Black Pawn is Bane. The White Pawn is Alfred Pennyworth. The Black Pawn is Poison Ivy. The White Pawn is Azrael. The Black Rook is Killer Croc. And the final White Rook is Batwoman. Now I'm definitely excited about some of these pieces. I don't think I would collect them all. They're about $16 per piece. I don't even want to think about that cost plus of course this very nice board that they have out. But definitely interested in potentially getting the Oracle and Batgirl. So I definitely encourage you to check that out. Next up, as mentioned in one of those three Mondo episodes for BTO Anniversary, Donovan and the Dark Side. This has been going on for a few months now, and this Kickstarter campaign is actually very close to its goal of $2,000. Right now it has $1,452. Please let us help out and push it towards that goal of $2,000. Uh, remember, it's helping a young Star Wars fan with special needs really tell his story. And you can search Donovan and the Dark Side or go on kickstarter.com. And finally, Lego Batman 2 DC Superheroes. Have you seen this news that has come out? Now, Warner Brothers Entertainment has released an official press release that announced a follow-up game to their wildly popular Lego Batman video game. Now, this game, titled Lego Batman 2 DC Superheroes, will again feature Batman and Robin, along with some other notable DC superheroes. Heroes that will include Superman, Wonder Woman, and Green Lantern, and hopefully we can see a Batgirl as well. The game will focus on the heroes trying to stop the team of Lex Luthor and the Joker. So definitely excited for that. I've actually not played uh, Lego Batman 1, but uh, I do have a few friends that I'm sure will lend it to me if I ask nicely. But looking forward to that. Oh, oh dear. It, it seems we have a last bit entry here. Okay, it's, it's a letter right here, kind of written in some sort of cuneiform scrawl. Can't really make it out to a... Uh, okay, dear BTO, this is your warning? If you do not have a shipper-centric show before February 14th, oh dear, I will take over your show by any means necessary. Hatefully yours, Heather Glenn. 
Oh, um, well, this is certainly not on the docket. Stella, I pass it over to you. Do you have any idea what is going on? Uh, n no. Uh, and that makes me exceptionally nervous because you remember last time when Heather Glenn was on, she was not a happy camper. Uh, we'll have to discuss this, Kimberly and I, and figure out what we're going to do. But we really cannot take her threat lightly. Uh, boy, well, let's put that to the back right now and, and, and try to move forward with an open mind. Uh, some brief comments that I've received uh, over uh, the past month or so, I think especially from episode 31 on. First up, Stella in Marlon Brando voice. I just heard the Spider-Man Crossface episode that announced your retirement. I don't listen to the podcast until I've read the issues covered. I was stunned and saddened to hear you left the podcast. You brought some sanity and a different perspective that I enjoyed hearing. I had even thought that Kevin might have left the podcast as he was absent for a while too. That would have been the death nail in my opinion. Glad he is still there. Well, at least we still have the Babs podcast to get our solo fill. Keep up the good work and long live Barbara Gordon. Thanks, Paul D. Yeah, you know, I love Spider-Man Crawl Space, and really I cannot say enough about uh, the wonders that go on there and, and really the love and respect that I have towards Brad, and it was really tough for me to leave that show. Um, I had been praying about it, and it, it's... It's kind of like giving up a child, you know. That was the first podcast that I had been on, and that these really—I mean, all of the friends, like these big friends that I have, really have come from that podcast. And just to think, if that never had happened, um, but I'm just in not really enjoying, you know, the, the Spider-Man, the current Spider-Man books right now. And I love Spider-Man, and uh, no one can take that love away from me. And just to have that tarnished by the quality, the low quality of the books, I just couldn't really go on with that. And so I, I had to bid adieu, but no love lost. You know, I, I really respect the show and everything. And I did, at least, um, you may hear me on the BatmanUniverse.net. I, I don't know how I finagled my way on to there, frankly. And, of course, every every episode I feel like I may get fired for something that I that I say or disagreements that I may make with uh, Dustin. But it is good fun, and, and it's, uh, it's refreshing, certainly, to have a group of books that I generally enjoy, Red Hood and the Outlaws, uh, notwithstanding. On to the next. Uh, greetings and salutations, Stella. Happy anniversary to the show. There must be something about Bat family members and circuses slash carnivals. Dick Grayson and Jason Todd were circus kids before taking on the Robin Mantle. Kathy Kane ran a carnival after being Batwoman. And Barbara Gurdon, well, she was in Congress. Babs in the Tube. Hmm. Knight and Squire in the 1960s Batman show. Could have been interesting. Keep up the great work and continue to fly on, Babs lover. Cool B. That's actually a really interesting connection. I kind of, you always have these like individual, like uh, uh, tidbits of knowledge that, yes, you know, Dick Grayson was a circus kid and, you know, Kathy Kane ran this carnival, but you never kind of make those connections. So it's great to have someone point those out to you. And of course, more on these London uh, 1960s uh, Batman people. It's very interesting, especially this episode, and then we'll have another one next month. 
Hey, Stella, just listened to the last episode, and I have to say WTF. Not about your review. That was excellent, as always, but with the content of the book itself. Now, I've sworn to myself to boycott the DC News, similar to how our good buddy George Berryman is boycotting Spider-Man. I'm voting with my wallet and refusing to buy their books until the status quo is reverted. That said, whatever has piqued my interest, I either burn steel or get from my good buddy, Tor. I have not yet read Batgirl number three, but by judging by your, Don, and Josh's summary, I'm not missing anything. I do, however, have a problem with double standards in comics. Much like Michael Bailey did when Michelle Gonzalez punched Peter Parker, I'm going to get on a soapbox. Now, from what I gather from the review, Dick was genuinely worried about Babs, but she threw a you-know-what fit and started unloading on him, beating him to the point where I believe it was Josh who noted she drew blood. Now, say, after Bloodhaven was destroyed, or Blue Haven, really, because there's an umlaut. Uh, after Infinite Crisis, Babs was concerned about how Dick was holding up. If Dick responded to her by hauling off and punching her in the face, it would make him look like his namesake. I don't want to pick on Gail Simone, but how can she, of all people, mishandle Barbara's characterization? As for double standards, that's just a pet peeve of mine, and I'll just have to set it aside. I will say the last time one of these got me so ticked off was Black Canary's Bachelor at Party During Countdown, where all the female characters had a wild night at a strip club and allowed Supergirl and Wonder Girl in despite the fact they're underage and even slipped them some drinks. I totally remember this. Now, Oliver Queen is a playboy right up there with Tony Stark, but if there was a comic where he, Superman, Batman, and Green Lantern were getting hammered at a strip club with the drunken Tim Drake and Connor Kent, it would make national headlines. Superman at a strip club news at 11. The double standard thing aside, it seems the book is being poorly written. I say this with no disrespect meant to Gail, but her writing has been lacking in quality since her last turn returning to Birds of Prey. I agree. As a fan of Gail's, that's honestly, that honestly makes me sad. When Chuck Dixon left Birds of Prey, he left big shoes to fill. Gail took the reins and ran with them, making the title her own. Now, something in her writing has changed, and as rude as it may sound, I think Gail has passed her prime. I haven't been this let down by a writer since James Robinson, James Robinson's take on Superman. Despite my problems and criticisms, if you enjoy the books, I'm happy for you, and I hope uh, you continue to get pleasure from them. For me, it's just a sad reaffirmation that reaffirmation, sorry, that my DC Universe has been OMD'd, oh man. Respectfully, TNR. Um, I definitely agree with you basically on all points there, TNR. Uh, the double standard, yeah, I can totally see that, and that is especially frustrating. You know, the only reason, like, I didn't like that scene. I mean, I, I didn't really like that particular book. Like, the only positive thing that I liked was that, you know, they were together, Dick and Babs. And the only way I could really justify what was going on is that she just has she has had these issues before as I've said on that cast that just these um, kind of low self esteem issues maybe that's not like the best but just you know she doesn't want to be perceived as weak and when anyone does and this is especially true when she was Oracle and in the wheelchair when anyone tries to help her she takes it the completely wrong way and gets really angry and instead of beating them up though you know she would yell at them but now I guess she takes to violence but I do agree it you know it went too far and yeah if if Dick had done that to her like we would all be like oh my word you know it'd just be like Hank Pym hitting Janet Pym like that exact thing so I do agree with you there um about Gail Simone 
Gail Simone, like I've been hard on Gail Simone, I, you know, and I know people do not appreciate me being hard on Gail Simone. And it's not like me attacking her. I'm just, I'm like really looking at the writing. And in my opinion, the writing is not as strong. I agree 100%, 200%. It is not as strong as when she first took on the Birds of Prey. That stuff was gold. Chuck Dixon like that is platinum right there and then Gail Simone came on and it was great when we had the next batch of Birds of Prey it started off okay like you were really interested with this um, white canary and everything but it, it sort of it took a bad turn and things were like Death of Oracle was obviously like I'm, you know what is the point of this what's going on exactly and then we have uh, back roll right now. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if it's necessarily that Gail Simone is past her prime. What I what I honestly believe is that there is so much pressure on Gail Simone right now. Uh, she is a fan favorite. Uh, you have Batgirl, which I think arguably is like the one title that everyone probably is most interested in. Uh, is it going to succeed or is it going to fail? We have Barbara Gordon, the pinnacle Batgirl, back in the cowl. Like, this is something that's going to get people's attention. And you have her on that book. I think that's a stressful thing. It's such a burden. Such a, not a cross to bear, that wouldn't work. But such a burden on her shoulders. And to you can even visualize this. She dropped writing Firestorm because she wanted to focus on Batgirl. So what does all this mean? There's so much pressure on her that I almost think she's over trying. She's trying too much to, to potentially please everyone, please no one. I, I don't know. Uh, but she's trying to get the job done, and I, I definitely respect her for that. But I think like she really does need to, to almost take a step back, take a deep breath, and just like look at it with a new a new pair of eyes. And I think... Oh, man, if she could somehow unload that burden, I, I think that would be great. I'm not going to get to it in this episode, obviously, but I've read Batgirl number five, and it it, <laughs> it makes me teary-eyed how um, how it, it was not good. And I know there are people out there giving it five out of five, and I'm just not sure why or how you could do that. And I look forward to the day, I honestly do, when this is when we're reading the background comic that needs to be and should be. Um, but right now, right now it's just not there. So thanks for writing in TNR. Uh, definitely great thoughts that you shared with me. Oh, this is the big one here. The uh, Again from TNR, and this is the final one. This is all about the Arkham City uh, petition to kind of give you more information on it. Hey, Stella, I was wondering if you had the chance to play Batman Arkham City yet. If so, what is your review? Have you downloaded Robin and Nightwing as well as the costumes and challenges? I'm emailing in to let you know about a fan petition to have Batgirl as a DLC character. Right now, Rocksteady has released all their current DLC and are working to make more, and they would like the fans' input. According to the official Arkham City message board polls right now, most are clamoring for story episodes for Robin and Nightwing, similar to what we got for Catwoman. Others want playable characters like Red Hood, Joker, and the Domino Daredevil herself, Batgirl. While Babs is Oracle in the Arkhamverse, and the most likely candidate is Cassandra, the possibility of skins would allow all Batgirls as playable Babs, Steph, Cass, maybe even Batwoman. 
With the skins, everyone could enjoy it no matter who their favorite Batgirl is. It is also a great possibility, as Arkham City makes up for the lack of costumes in Arkham Asylum. Batman has a total of nine costumes, counting his default. He's got animated, uh, Earth One, Year One, Dark Knight Returns, 1970s, Batman Beyond, Sinestro Corps, and Batman Inc. Catwoman has animated and Long Halloween. Robin has animated and Red Robin. Nightwing, unfortunately, has only the default and his animated costume, but there may be further skin packs down the road. I'd look forward to the 90s blue and yellow, which could allow for gliding, or even the novelty of the George Perez disco look. However, since this pertains to Batgirl and has the possibility to appeal to each one's fan base, I thought I'd share it with you. Right now, there are, are 42 pages on the thread but it still has only 177 signatures the good news a woman named sarah may signed the petition sarah's rock studies community manager and is one of the big head honchos who make these kind of decisions so if we get more interest it could very be a very strong possibility we may see batgirl in the coming months tnr 105 I absolutely appreciate uh, you, TNR105, for writing in. And that was several weeks ago that he wrote in. And I, when I signed up, there were more than uh, 177 uh, signatures there. I definitely signed up. But that would be great to have the option of um, multiple you know, skins and everything. And I would love to play as Cass. You know, I'm a great fan of Cass. And, and I respect her certainly more, I think, than I used to, just looking at a distance from her since I've actually read her series now. So please, yeah, get on it. I think that would be great. I have started Arkham City, and let's see, I guess I'm at the beginning of the second Catwoman chapter, and I got it for Black Friday, or on Black Friday, for $30. See, that's what I was waiting for. But I have decided that I'm probably not going to get back into it until some sort of long... Uh, holiday so hopefully Easter maybe something else but I was just thinking about all these side missions because you it's hard to ignore those and I was just feeling sort of overwhelmed because I, I feel like it's necessary like it's mandatory and I know it's not but I've got this story going on and then something happens I feel like I need to leave and go and do that so I, you know I can get some XP so until I can like wholly devote my time because it's difficult to come home after work I definitely work out, and then I have, like, a choice between one or two things that I could potentially do. It's difficult to devote a good amount of time to that, a good enough amount of time. And so I think I'm going to wait a little bit. But so far, and see, I don't think I'm as far in. Right now, I, I, I think that I like Batman Arkham Asylum a little bit more. But, and probably all of you are like, what? But I I think I'm just not far enough in. So we'll we will see. But, um... I usually take an extreme amount of time to beat these open world games. I mean, Spider-Man 2 probably took me three years to beat. <laughs> Infamous 2 took me a year and a half. So this is what, like, I'm talking about. I mean, Uncharted 3, I've already, I've got my platinum on it. Like, I like really structured things that are, you know, Uncharted, I can come in and play one or two chapters, and it has a definite ending of a chapter. So I'm like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop for the day. Or the night, I suppose. But I don't have that for Arkham City. But we'll see. I'll keep you guys posted i am keeping away from all sort of spoilers and everything well thanks again for writing in of course comments and questions are welcome be sure to send in your questions for Dwayne Swazinski and you can email me at backroll to oracle at gmail.com 
Okay, there are, oh my word, so many reviews right now, and <laughs> the book seemed huge, especially the Batman Family. They were the longest ever, especially this first one, Batman Family 13, The Man Who Melted Manhattan. It was on shelves in September 1977. Writer Bob Rosakis, Art Don Newton, Marshall Rogers, and Bob Wiasek. Colorist Jerry Serpe. Also included in this issue is Batman's Bureau of Missing Villains featuring The Outsider. The quote I pulled out was from good old Alfred. I advise you, sir, that I have been trained in the manly arts of fisticuffs. Chapter 1. Death Derby at Dawn. When we last saw Babs and Dick, they had both mysteriously received a motorcycle, and upon investigation they hopped on, became chained to the bikes, and found themselves on a crash course set for New York. The dynamite duo quickly realized that whoever gave the motorcycles wanted the two heroes to die, as they both are directed toward each other. Over and over, the two try elaborate stunts in an attempt to avoid each other, not the least of which is somehow ascending and descending a tall office building. Unfortunately, the two are unable to get close to one another in order to help, but with some quick Head and handwork, Robin is able to get his utility belt off and uses it to unshackle his wrist from the bike's handle. After he is freed, Robin hops on Backrow's bike and helps free her. They both get off the bikes just in time as they crash into one another. Recuperating on the sidewalk, Robin drops his sarcastic routine and lets his true feelings for Babs out. Babs tries to push it off as a joke and brings up the fact that everywhere during the hectic ride she kept seeing Alfred. The partners go off to breakfast as Chapter 1 ends. Chapter 2, Twilight of the Sunset Gang. Kirk Langstrom and his wife are watching in news reports about the Were Jaguar, an unfortunate transformation of Man-Bat. After Kirk speaks of his money frustrations, he decides to go out on his patrol. Francine is concerned about the Sunset Gang being out there because they may still have the strange moonlight device that changed him into... Uturunku, the were-jaguar. He leaves anyway after he transforms into Manbat. Unfortunately for Manbat, he does encounter the Sunset Gang, and they do still have the moonbeam flashlight. Manbat uses a piece of artwork to reflect the moonbeam and takes out the gang. Following this, a weirdo with a bad skin condition and purple undies appears, calling himself the Outsider. He uses the power of the moon itself and actually separates Manbat from Uturunku. The outsider plans to destroy anyone with ties to the Batman family. Uturunku and Manbat go into the American Museum of Natural History, duke it out, and it seems that Manbat meets his unfortunate demise as Chapter 2 concludes. Chapter 3 Explosive End of the Dynamite Duo. Batgirl and Robin are in a secret Teen Titans headquarters below Gabriel's Horn, a disco theek in Farmingdale, Long Island. They tap into the Justice League satellites in order to get a bead on the Outsider's location. Trying and failing to get a hold of Alfred all day, all the duo can do is wait and hope. Babs comments on the great team relationship of the Teen Titans, but Dick disagrees, not desiring to get into it. Dick begins a short monologue on his life and how he is a man and she is the one girl he can never get. He loves her as a friend, a partner, and even a big sister, and perhaps one day he could love her as... Well, we don't really know because Babs is asleep. 
Babs's respite is short when the outsider comes a Colin and leaps through a computer monitor, snatching the dynamite duo's utility belts and binding them with their own bat ropes. He is the outsider, and he hates the Batman. He explains how he wants to destroy the Bat family and that Man Bat is already dead, killed by Uturunku. And speaking of the Were Jaguar, here he comes to leap through the computer monitor to kill Batgirl and Robin. Chapter 4 Inside Outside Melting Down the Town The Outsider has transformed the entire New York City into candles, a warning to Batman's hometown which will be nothing more than melted wax. Luckily, Batgirl and Robin track him down sans utility belts. They are later joined by Man-Bat, who actually survived the encounter with the Whale Jaguar and puts on the Jaguar's skin in order to play the part, and they all start to beat on the Outsider. It is hard going, and at one point Robin pulls a Mary Jane or a Gwen Stacy, can't keep them straight, and falls off a bridge. Luckily, Man-Bat is there to save him. Finally, the three work as a team. Robin uses a special moonbeam flashlight and separates Alfred from the Outsider. After Alfred becomes oriented to the situation, he uses his know-how to beat up the Outsider and then faints. Manbat flies off and Alfred wakes up in a midtown hotel with Robin and Batgirl standing over him. I guess it's good that he does not remember what has happened. Epilogue Babs is back in D.C., and she's just about to take a shower, but has to answer the doorbell first, only to discover Batwoman melting. Bum, bum, bum. Okay, well, we'll save that for the next issue. Okay, this outsider character is so strange. Uh, you know, while pushing Batman and Robin... This is some history for you guys. While pushing Batman and Robin out of the way of a falling boulder, Alfred was seemingly killed in Detective Comics number 328, which came out in uh, 1964. But it was later revealed in Detective 356, uh, two years later, that he had been revived by a scientist named Brandon Crawford. And his attempt at regeneration resulted in a dramatic change. Alfred awoke from his apparent death with with pasty white skin with circular markings, superhuman powers including telekinesis, and, man, a straight desire to destroy Batman and Robin. Oh boy. So calling himself the Outsider, he indirectly battled the dynamic duo on a number of occasions using others as his puppets. Uh, the Grasshopper Gang in Detective 334, Zatanna in Detective 336, and even the Batmobile in <laughs> Detective 340. And you know, generally only appeared as a mocking voice over the radio. He did not physically appear in the comics undetect until Detective 356, when he is bathed again in the rays of the regeneration machine during a struggle with Batman and actually returned turns to normal with apparently no memory, isn't that lucky or convenient, no memory of his time as a supervillain. So this was actually the first time that I've ever seen The Outsider, and I was actually, you know, shocked to see that Alfred was his alter ego, uh, but knowing his history now, I have to say that truly, really and truly, this is one strange character. I also think some of the things that he's able to do are kind of hokey. I mean, turning New York City into candles, really? Some things to note, uh, Babs, again, blue eyes, and uh, she still doesn't know that Bruce is Batman, given the way she refers to Alfred and Bruce Wayne when she's talking about them. The motorcycle scene is a little unbelievable and seems to go on for a little too long, though this is going to happen again in the next issue. You know, they go up and down buildings, and I still don't know how this, you know, 
does not happen in a non-Batman Beyond universe. How does how does that work? I mean, gravity is pushing. I I don't know. And then suddenly, when there are seemingly no tricks to be had, they are able to free themselves. What? I mean, I guess the writers were like, "Hey, I think it's it went on for a couple pages. Let's let's have them figure it out." Now, thinking back about it now, I feel like the whole motorcycle ploy is weird to begin with. Why would the outsider use that to get back Ron Robin to New York? You know, is that all he could really think of? Wouldn't there have been some other um, distress call that he could have put in or maybe kidnapped Lori Elton or Bobby or um, Jason Bard, you know, one of the, the new squeezes or old squeezes of Babs? Isn't there something more compelling? And where is Batman in all of this? How does he not know that this is going on? And how is he not going to the aid of his, you know, his family? Major heavy shipping. Heavy shipping. I could get serious with you. Just remember, this is a business relationship. Oh, uh, sure, I know that. Just making a joke, you know. <laughs> I mean, then, of of course, there's that long speech that he makes. This is the beginning, folks, and it is the biggest push that we have seen so far. I mean, I just want you, maybe I'll go there right now and read this uh, this speech that we have. Babs, I guess I do come on strong sometimes, and I really don't have any right to. At Hudson U, Robin's a big celebrity. I can get any girl I want, but you're the girl I can never get. Yeah, I'm a hotshot superhero, and I get my name in the papers and people all know me, but you have all the same things. You aren't odd by my fame. It's kind of like having a crush on your fifth grade teacher. Everything she says or does, you interpret as a sign that she's madly in love with you. But that's not the case at all. It's always a one-sided thing. But I'm a big boy now, and I have to say something you might not want to hear. I love you, Babs, as a friend, as a partner, even as a big sister. And I'd like to believe I could love you as a... Babs? Batgirl? Aw, shoot. She's asleep. Yeah, that's it, folks. Um... (laughs) Oh boy, if uh, only that guy from Natalie, Virginia could uh, could write us in and or write into us and tell us what he feels like. Um, you know, how strange that Man Bat's wife, you know, thinks all of this is really normal with him just taking some serum, changing, then going off to fight crime. I feel like that's the opposite of normal, but I don't know too much about Uh, Kirk Langstrom and Francine and their relationship so I guess I can't judge this is probably my first introduction to Man Bat Uh, so you know again I'm coming at the character from a different perspective his speech in regards to thanks uh, not giving him money seems random and doesn't really make sense I mean when are heroes other than Booster Gold going to get money is that now let's think about is that the wear jaguar skin that he wears or is it just some sort of other spotted skin that Man Bat is using I'd like to know why Alfred doesn't remember everything. Is this just a simple way to patch everything up and have it as though the outsider never existed? I did really like the fact that all these characters somehow came together to fight. You know, it's it's great to see multiple members of the Bat family together, something which really resounds uh, with the current DC new. And so I would give this 8.5 out of 10 bats. Okay, we do have some letters here. Dear editor, Batman Family number 11 was great. Bob Rosaka certainly did human service on this issue, turning out three fine tales. 
A batting girl Robin team-up is always a winner in my book, until Death Do Us Part was no exception. There were holes in the plot big enough to drive a bat cycle through, but these minor flaws paled in insignificance when compared to the fine execution of the basic idea. There are stories in which the writer has a good thought, but carries it off poorly. This tale was just the opposite. The plot wasn't much, and things like the wedding scene didn't make a whole lot of sense. But the characterization and little extra touches throughout the story, like that famous Washington Underground Garage, saved it. The Batgirl-Robin relationship was handled perfectly, especially in the last panel of the epilogue. Batgirls and Robin's individual battles were also quite good. Even the dialogue was funny without being corny or campy. And mm, Swan Coletta Odd again. This team is okay by me. The two backups were much better than I expected. Man Bat is a very unusual superhero. The relative unattractiveness of his costume identity, his need for money because he can't fight crime and hold down a job. Barbersakis has shown us new facets of his personality and Man Bat over Manhattan. Cook Langstrom is still much in awe of his idol Batman, but has gained confidence in his own abilities. The bat instinct was a good idea and was well used in his battle with Snafu. And the Marshall Rogers slash Tex Blaisdell uh, was appropriately batty. The real surprise of the issue was aptly titled Surprise, Surprise. Commissioner Gordon and Alfred were excellently depicted. The commission as the old hand detective and the ever faithful, resourceful Alfred. For once, both were credited with having some brains. Of all the times that Alfred disguised himself to protect Batman's identity, this is the first I recall in which it was handled realistically. The congregation of old friends for Bruce's body was another good idea. The high point of the story, of course, was Gordon's cool realization of Alfred's secret and his subtle way of letting Bruce Dick and Alfred know that the game was up. Terrific ending on Bob's part. If I keep this up, I may form a one-girl Bob Rosakis fan club, Beth Montalone, 13 Rowley Saint Apartment 3, Rochester, New York, 414607. Sorry, Beth, but you scripter already has a one-girl fan club, my wife, Lori, who insists on keeping the membership very exclusive. But thanks for the compliments. And by the way, I'll do my best to spell your name correctly. From now on, B.R. Dear Editor, My faith in Batman family was somewhat shaken upon seeing the cover of number 11. The sight of Batgirl and Robin at the altar sent cries of schlock, schlock, running through my brain. Upon opening the book, unspying an almost identical scene on the splash page, a groan could be heard from the corner of the store I was in. Dejectedly, I plunged down my money and left for home. I later read the issue, but in a rather peculiar order. I perused the man and Commissioner Gordon Alfred's stories first. Then came Death Do Us Part, and my mood changed from despondency to satisfaction very quickly. One thing that helped was the fact that the marriage was carried out believably. The set-up of and by Mays made perfect sense. Almost. 
Why did Robin have Mays go through all complexities of taking a wedding? Wouldn't it have been simpler to have all the hoods meet in a less conspicuous place than the Ford Theatre? These are professional killers, not Hollywood press agents. I suppose I could pick the story apart, but instead I'll leave it alone. What you have is a well-written tale which will surely be remembered fondly by quite a few readers. Mike White, 207 West Fast, Mackinac, Illinois, 61755. Sure, the Teen Wonder could have staged the maze roundup in a warehouse, but it wouldn't have been as exciting. Besides, the wedding situation was so outrageous that nobody in Mays even guessed they were being set up. B.R. Deadadoo. TLDF News Part was told so much in the tradition of the 60s that I have expected to pick up a newspaper and read about President Johnson. First off, there were the clever formal versions of the dynamite duo's costumes used on the cover on splash page, who was responsible for one. Then there was the plot broken down to chapters, with the inclusion of the old scientific devices. My only regret is that the information given in the epilogue wasn't shifted into the story itself. It comes off as amateurish when the heroes talk to the readers, and embarrass me when Batgirl and Robin realize I've been eavesdropping on them. For 18 pages. Tell Mitchell, 55 West Washington, Yakima, Washington, 989-03. Other readers disagreed, Tom, and enjoyed our rather unconventional epilogue. As for the wedding outfits, they were designed and colored by none other than associate editor E. Nelson Bridwell. And as we hum, here comes the Bridwell. Let's move on to the next letter. B.R. Dear Mr. Schwartz, from his origin, Manbat was a promising character who couldn't be forgotten. And in Manbat over Manhattan, he proved once again that he is a crime fighter worth his salt. Though Kirk's choice of cities is unoriginal, it is wise nonetheless since New York seems overstocked with crime. I was unaware that Francine had cured her uncontrollable Shiba changes and hope you fill us in on that one. As for her new condition, I hope it's a girl. Georgian Freiner, 12 Green Street, Trumbull, Connecticut, 06611. Mombat over Manhattan was a good story and Snafu made a good villain. But what happened? In Detective number 458 and 459, Manny lived in Chicago, had a wife who needed a blood transfusion to get the Manbat serum out of her system, and definitely did not have a little Manbat Jr. on the way. Now the Langstroms live in Manhattan. Everybody knows of Manbat's existence. Francie is apparently recovered, and there's a kid do. And now Kirk's making a living as Manbat. Too bad. You'd think the 100 grand Batman gave him in Raven the Mold 119 would have lasted longer. How about an explanation, Mr. Rozakis? Paul Blase, 115 Crest Avenue, Glen Burnie, Maryland, 21061. Explanation? Certainly. The $100,000 was used by Kirk to cure Francine. And if you've ever been in a hospital, you probably know how the costs pile up. The city switch was best explained by Manbat himself. New York is so much like Gotham that I feel right at home. And while I would have been competing with Batman there, I've got the night prowling pretty much to myself. And as for Francine being pregnant, please don't ask us to explain how that happened. B.R. Dear Editor, 
in his relatively short career, Velvet has had an astonishingly wide array of writers and artists, but none have done a better job than the latest team. Marshall Rogers has become one of DC's finest pencilers, and if the series has become his home, I am overjoyed. And Bob Zakas provided a first-rate script, adding some imaginative qualities to the characters. Cook Langstrom's mercenary attitude is a nice twist, but I'm willing to bet that, minus pretense notwithstanding, our hero still winds up taking a lot of cases for no pay. After all, he's a good guy, and good guys have hearts of gold. The subplot dealing with Francine's pregnancy offers a multitude of ideas for future plots. And finally, this new villain Snafu is very exciting. He has formidable powers and a terrific costume. I hope we'll see him again soon. Scott Gibson, 27110 South Pinehurst, Evergreen, Colorado, 80439. Marshall's also found a home over in Detective Comics, where he and Terry Austin are teamed up on the Batman himself, B.R. Dear people, as soon as I saw the words, Alfred, Commissioner Gordon team, I began to worry that you guys would have them dragging criminals all about the script. Quite the contrary. The entire story was a logical, boom piece of trivia from the lives of people involved. It didn't have to be told, and yet, as it turns out, I'd hate to miss it. In short, I loved it. I was also happy to see Vicky Vale again, wouldn't mind seeing a few of these old characters resurface. They were handled atrociously back in the 60s, but could really be interesting today. And Batman family is just a place for them. Scott R. Taylor, 103 Markham Place, Portland, Texas, 78. Three, seven, four. I've always liked Alfred and Commissioner Gordon, and combining them in Surprise Surprise was a good idea. <sighs> I would have enjoyed the story even more if we had mm, seen more of Bruce Wayne's friends. Speaking of that, what I'd like to see in the future issues is... <sighs> Well, mostly more of the same. But the returns of Batwoman, uh, Julie Madison, Batgirl, possibly facing Batgirl, and Batmite are wished for. Uh, at least by me. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know a huge selection of your readers view Batmite with rancor, but he, he always kind of appealed to me. How about it? Lee Walkner, RD2 Box 185A, Absicon, New Jersey, 08201. Batwoman figures prominently in next issue's Batgirl Robin team up, and the original Batgirl will be returning to action in Teen Titans number 50 on sale in mid July. Julie Madison, maybe one of those issues, but Batmite, what do you think? Bob Rosakis. And that is it for those crazy people. On to Batman Family number 14. Old superheroines never die. They just fade away. October 1977. Bob Rosakis, permanent press writer. Don Heck and Bob Wiasek, indelible artists. 
Jerry Serpe, Color Fast Colorist, and Ben Oda, Lightning Fast Letterer. Also included in this issue are Man Bat, starring in Cinema Attack, Batman's Bureau of Missing Villains featuring the Zodiac Master. This issue begins by rehashing the epilogue as seen in Batman Family 13 with Babs just having returned from the bout with the outsider and ready to take a shower. She's interrupted by a knock at the door and seeing Batwoman melt before her. Rewind a few hours before to an upper-class house in Georgetown where a Dr. Brawny and Mr. Brain are breaking in. Their pilfering is interrupted by the entrance of newly out-of-retirement Batwoman. As with most perfs, they decide to fight their way out of it, shooting a blaster at Batwoman. She avoids the blaster at first and is able to get some hits in before the convincer, which is the blaster's name, finally makes contact and knocks her out. Brain and Braun get their choice jewels and run off, leaving Batwoman unconscious on the floor. Back in the present, Babs is mourning the loss of Kathy, but uses her investigative know-how to see some sort of chemical on Kathy's costume, which reminds her of her junior year at Gotham State, where Professor New showed her a hybrid virus, which he created in lab. She tries to cover over. She tries to overcome her sweep deprivation and rents an airplane to fly her to Hudson U, where the professor is now. Once there, she visits Professor New, and he tells her that what she found is a form of his virus that is deadly and highly contagious, and that anyone coming in contact with Batwoman, or now Batgirl, will share Batwoman's fate. Meanwhile, at Hudson U, Dick is walking back home, still thinking about the late finance paper that he has yet to start. He runs into Laurie, who has been sick with worry and has even called her Uncle Frank, former New Carthage police chief and now head of Hudson's security force, to look for him. He explains that he pulled an all-nighter with research for the paper and even traveled to New York to find a book. They kiss and make up, but are interrupted by a call from Babs. Symbolism! Laurie tries to go with him, but he explains that he needs her to get the APB for him taken off. Before he leaves, Laurie hints that she may know his secret identity. Robin arrives at the Hudson U chemistry lab and is quickly caught up to speed by Batgirl and Professor New, wrapped in saran wrap. The two make their way to the house in Georgetown after finding some rare fertilizer. They find out that the house was robbed and connect that Batwoman was most likely there to stop them. As Batgirl and Robin get ready to leave, their car is stolen. Robin tells Batgirl to wait so her plastic bag slash containment suit does not get ripped. Some pixie boot surfing, taxi cab wrangling, and car bareback riding, and Robin gets the car back. Robin shows Batgirl a colored piece of cardboard that turns out to be a portion of a ticket to a ride with some cotton candy on it. They connect this with the Carney convention that is set up around the Washington Monument, a carnival that Kathy Kane owns. It seems that she was hunting the burglars in Georgetown because they were committed by people in the carnival. They ask around and find out that Kathy kept coming over to a particular tent. Batgirl and Robin both enter to find Mr. Brand and Dr. Bronny in the middle of a show. They slip up and accidentally reveal that they were the ones to take out Batwoman. Robin is shot by the convincer before he takes out Mr. Brain. Batgirl fights Dr. Braun and her suit comes in handy when Braun shoots the convincer but is unable to cause any damage because it cannot get to exposed skin. After defeating the two guys, Robin calls a friend and Kid Flash comes by and speeds them to Hudson U where Professor New is. Once there, Professor New tells him that the convincer is more of a condenser which causes living tissue to shrink. Now with a cure, he shoots Robin and Batgirl with a beneficial virus. Kid Flash spreads a cure along the route he took, and then they use the cure on Batwoman. Kathy grows before their eyes, showing no memory of the strange happenings. As the issue ends, Robin is hoping Kid Flash can help him type the paper as quickly as 
he can dictate it to him. Okay. Oh man, strange issues abound me. It certainly, uh, <laughs> it certainly seems. Uh, I had a particular hard time, a particularly hard time keeping the two villains that Batwoman was fighting straight, especially since the big guy, which you would expect to be kind of the dumb one, but the strong one, is actually the smart guy, and that is Mr. Brain. And then the small guy is the strong one, that's Dr. Brawn. It's kind of weird. And it means, it reminds me of Pinky in the Brain. I do wonder why Batgirl is using Babs' bank account to rent the plane. Uh, could this not connect her directly? At least it is good that Professor New probably doesn't have a photographic memory to connect Babs with Batgirl. Um, so that's okay, but everything else, uh, I still feel like it's about time that someone show up and say, I know your identity. You mean, you remember everything? Even what happened when we dot dot dot? When we what? When we what? What is Robin talking about? I have no idea. Is he talking about the couch scene in the last one? But then he says, when we, I... <laughs> I Oh, no. I was about to say when they got fake married, but they were both cognizant for that. No, seriously, that is... Well, maybe someone, maybe an adept um, letter writer will mention this and wonder what's going on. I think that the heavy shipping of background Robin of the last issue is overturned by the Dory shipping in this issue. But of course, like I said, symbolism, I mean, Barbara interrupts them again. This is not the first time she's called when they were shipping. Uh, comments about wishing a bat rope could come out of his sleeves uh, that Robin does when he's trying to chase down the taxi cab um, or really the, the jacked car that they took. You know, is Robin referencing Spidey, which is really not the first time that I've seen some connections between Spider-Man and uh, this comic. And frankly, I wonder about the whole carjacking scene in the first place. Why is it in here? It does not add to the story, and it just really serves to interrupt the current case. You know, it goes on for far too long, and it's, I mean, again, it's unbelievable. What? He's surfing on his pixie boots. He throws a batarang with the rope attached through a window. It comes out the other window, and then he's, like, holding it as if they were reins. Really? Uh. And why are they using all these borrowed vehicles? Shouldn't Batgirl and Robin have their own bikes that they could get from one place to another? I mean, the airplane is, that's understandable for Babs because she needs to get from D.C. up north, but they're just going around, you know, Hudson U. campus. I don't know. Then we get back to the real story, and somehow Robin has found this crucial clue. Uh, crucial clue. When did this happen? Uh, <laughs> before that, they somehow connect fertilizer with this one house in Georgetown. I leaps, the leaps. I liked the crime connected with the carnival, but it was never really explained how Brain and Braun both got their hands on this virus, and that's kind of a big detail to forget as well. Come to think of it, I would also like to know how Kathy found Babs' apartment. They did, they weren't hanging out there <laughs> before when they had first met and everything. I feel like this issue whew, has a lot of an unanswered questions involved, and that, of course, pulls pulls quality down for me. And then we have this quote. Mommy, why is Batgirl wearing a plastic bag? Ask your father when you get home. What? What? <laughs> I mean, I have like a Stella, your, uh, your mind's in the gutter potential explanation for that. But I don't know if they would put that kind of thing in this. Con I, I just don't understand. Like some of these jokes I feel like are beyond me. 
to be honest, you know, those plastic bags in general are ridiculous. I just, uh, I can't even take it seriously. It was cool to see Kid Flash in this comic, even though he plays such a small part. Over, I give this 5 out of 10 bats. You know, there are so many leaps and stretches in this issue. And, you know, like I said before, this just, it weakens it. So let's see if we can make up for it with some good old-fashioned letter writing. Dear Julian Bob, Batman Family number 12 was another pleasant issue. The cover was the best yet, and the art and scripting of each of the stories was very nice as well. I am Batgirl's brother was a nice little tale, but unless you're planning on using the title character again, I see no reason for his appearance. Of course, using Tony Gordon as a narrator via his letter gave the script a nice point of view. A few personal touches and an interesting ending, but reviving him for that reason alone doesn't seem quite right. One story does not a character make, so I hope we'll be seeing Tony Gordon again somewhere. Captain Arrow was an interesting foe for Batgirl and provided some interesting action scenes, but his plan was a bit unbelievable. Stealing all those planes was one thing, but actually flying them? And I find it hard to believe that Tony recognized his sister right off the bat. Seeing through her disguise almost immediately was too hard to swallow. Dread Knight of the Jaguar was quite good in all respects. Marshall Rogers always turns out a favorable display, and this was no exception. The layout was great, and Terry Austin's inking was up to its usual standards. His use of tones always gives the art a professional look. The script was also interesting, and I'm glad to see its continued next issue, and tied in with the Backrow Robin tale, if I'm not mistaken. Manbath vs. Jaguar made an intriguing combination. Both battles, though easily won by Manny, were great. I particularly liked the fact that Manbat was distracted before he could recage the Jag, and then forgot about it till the beast showed up again. That, of course, led to his transformation, and the fact that Cook couldn't control his new body turned the tables. From hunting crooks, Manbat became the hunted. His dilemma made me forget all about the Sunset Gang until the end. I guess they got away. Nice ending, since the villains are usually caught by the end. This time the story centered on the hero, leaving the Sunset Gang till next time. The Robin story wasn't the greatest, mainly because it was just another college caper. These run-of-the-mill baddies that inhabit Hudson University just don't make it with me. But the best part of Rally Round Robin was the characterization Lori Elton came across beautifully as a strong-willed, determined young woman with a good head on her shoulders. Her relationship with Dick was played up nicely. The only remaining comment I have is that I too would like to see a Batwoman series in BF. Please consider it. Scott R. Taylor, 183 Markham Place, Portland, Texas, 78374. If you saw Adventure Comics 453, you know that Tony Gordon did show up again, quite unexpectedly, too. As for Batwoman in a solo series, consider it considered. B.R. Well, Bob Rosakis has ruined a story with enormous potential. I am Batgirl's brother started out well, but the idea of some Gumby trying to lift a plane from the Smithsonian is retarded in the extreme. However, Tony did see his sister turning into Batgirl, so I turned the page and the sight of Captain Arrow immediately started my stomach churning. 
After cleaning up the mess, I decided to take the story apart. First of all, there was the name Captain Arrow, which is as bad or worse than Cosmo Dugger. Then there were absurdities like Batgirl throwing a rope around the tip of a rocket and saving herself. And when a plane like the Spirit of St. Louis is traveling at takeoff velocity and hits a small wall, presumably it would fall off the edge of the roof. Finally, how come Batgirl's cape was on the heat of a blowtorch? Oh, and one final question. In the Robin story, why was a non-existent book, see Batman Family 6 or 1, which must have appeared since then, suddenly worth a fortune? Tom Morrissey, 4673 West 99th Place, Oakland, Illinois, 60453. That girl's cape could withstand the heat of the torch, much the same way a blanket can be used to extinguish a fire by smoldering it. Which is exactly what Batgirl says she's doing. And Christine Ariadne wrote more than one book. How else could she have been a famous authoress? One of which was the first edition stolen at Hudson. As for the other two absurdities, we intend to fly a plane into a wall on a roof, and then last with the tip of a rocket. If our scriptorial judgments of what should happen are wrong, it's been nice knowing you. B.R. Dear Editor, You're driving me nuts! The only way to keep me out of the funny farm is to make your cliffhangers less interesting, or increase the frequency of Batman Family. No one can wait a whole 60 days after that bat cycle ending in BF12. Mark Rishik, 1207 West Parkway, Appleton, Wisconsin, 54911. The long waits are over, at least partially because now Batman Family is on an eight-times-a-year schedule, Mark. Be here the last week in September when Batgirl and Robin take on Killer Moth and the Cavalier and find the Batcave and rule the underworld, plus Man-Bat and a new solo stunner, Bob Rosakis. Dear Editor, <sighs> your reprint of Bruce Wayne loses the guardianship of Dick Grayson has encouraged me to bring up a question. When Bruce first sought to become Dick's legal guardian, he was refused the right to actual adoption because he was a bachelor. And this was the reason for the term ward, which has become so familiar to us all. I also suppose that... Though this was a fictional explanation, the truth was that Ward had some fascination for the editor who, er, uh, adopted it. Sorry about that. <laughs> now that Dick is 19, it may seem academic, but it strikes me that today Bruce might have been able to make an adoption. For one thing, there are now more and more single parents who choose to remain that way, asserting their ability to create a good environment for their children. And the stereotype of the male is a person entirely incapable of nurturing behavior who needs a woman to provide some mystical element lacking his personality is fast dissolving. Of course, there is no way of knowing if such legalese actually makes any difference to Dick, but you might have Bruce look into the matter. After 30-odd years as a ward, Dick might appreciate the change. Susanna Doyle, 4309 Baltimore Avenue, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19104. Hey, dear editor, the secret identity business is getting to be a mess. 
Now, if I read this right, Batman knows who Robin and Batwoman are. Robin knows Batman, Batwoman, and Batgirl. Batman, uh, Batwoman knows Batgirl. And Batgirl knows Robin and Batwoman. Not to mention Alfred, who on TV knew Batgirl, but in the comics only knows uh, Batman, Robin, and presumably Superman. And Commissioner Gordon, who knows Batgirl and presumably Batman and Robin, but I don't believe that. Anyway, can't Babs put two and two together? Doesn't she realize that if Dick is Robin, then obviously Bruce is Batman? Something must be done to rectify this situation. And the only valid solution is a mutual unmasking, since the old methods of deceiving a snooper, Alfred, Superman, the Batman robot, etc., hardly fit in today's mood. And neither does Batgirl, knowing Batman, but not vice versa. Paul Zuckerman, 1715 Caton Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, 11226. to Paul's list. Jimmy Olsen knows Batman and Robin. Superman knows Batman and Robin. And Tony Gordon knows Batgirl. Presumably, Batgirl knows Bruce's Batman, and the world's greatest detective could hardly be stumped by a secret his protege has uncovered. So whether they say so or not, it's a good bet. And speaking of identities, don't miss next issue's Batgirl-Robin team-up for some startling surprises. B.R. I have been a Batman fan for 15 years and feel it is time to do something about Robin's costume. Robin is almost 20 years old, no longer the little Robin red breast, for whom the costume was designed. Robin has the world's greatest detective as a teacher and should know the value of an effective costume. The Batman's very appearance provokes fear. But somehow, the sight of a young man in green boots, gym shorts, short-sleeved shirt, a red vest, and a yellow cape does not have the same effect. Robin's costume seems to have no practical purpose. It does not even protect him from the elements. He should have died at the Bodhi years ago. I would opt for an all-black costume, including a Batman-type headpiece with no ears or cape, and Robin's uh, trademark on his chest. John Carson, Evansville, Indiana. Though we enjoy seeing readers' new costumes for Robin, a change is a virtual impossibility, owing to the enormous amount of merchandise produced with the Teen Wonder in his current outfit. And besides, John, it's not the costume which provokes fear as much as it is the man inside it. B.R. Dear Editor, Is it alright to put more than one letter in an envelope? Steve Rogers, 542743, New Book, Texas, 79414. Sure, Steve. Provided you mark the envelope for all the magazine involved, and each letter is on a separate sheet of paper, we will cheerfully turn all letters over to the appropriate editors. B.R. Well, that is it for that. What a way to end with somebody asking if they can ship multiple letters. Way to waste that right there. When I come back, I will review Batgirl number four, Birds of Prey number four, Huntress number four, 
and Batman Inc. Leviathan, uh, as well as potentially touching upon Nightwing number four. And now Zias's Radio Hour featuring Good Morning Little Schoolgirl by The Grateful Dead. This is a longer song, just to, uh, to let you know. So if you need to fast forward, it's about six minutes long. Okay, see you soon. Oh, hey! Oh. 
hope you enjoyed that Grateful Dead song. Uh, my sister was always into the Grateful Dead, and I've certainly not listened to a lot of it, but I remember her making um, a mixtape for me and it having uh, Stella Blue Eyes on it, and uh, that always caught me. And I think now, being older, you certainly understand and I think better respect certain um, uh, music more, and I, I think they are certainly a group that I would be interested in. In, in learning more about and listening more to. <clears throat> so let's get right to this. Uh, hopefully you survive the tie-dye tie colored uh, bears dancing around your brain as you listened. Oh, starting off, background number four, an end to dreams. Writer Gail Simone, pencil Artie and Siaf, inker Vicente Cifuentes, and chorus Ulysses Areola. The issue opens with a startling image of Babs's Batgirl sitting in a wheelchair. We then see Barbara Gordon yelling at Batgirl, asking why her previous life with all her loved ones was not good enough. The guilt trip continues as Barbara, with an image of mirror behind her, asks why she received a miracle when so many others never receive one. As she tries to look at herself in the mirror, 
This literally happens as our friendly antagonist opens his cape and we see Batgirl and Barbara displayed all over. With a jolt, Barbara wakes up from the dream in her fully furnished room. It is two days before Christmas, and Barbara goes outside her room to find Elysia home from work and sitting in front of a Christmas tree. The two speak of the best Christmas gift they ever received. Elysia's was culinary school, and Babs, well, we're not too sure. Just as Babs begins to open up about her mother leaving, a work-stressed father and a mysterious cure in Africa, she clams up and leaves. In order to clear her head, Babs goes out as Batgirl and quickly finds a scene that needs her help. After she disposes of the perps, the couple in need thank her for allowing them to see their kids again. This gives Babs an idea. At a Gotham cemetery, we see Mirror paying his respect to his wife and twin girls. He finds a note at the gravesite from Batgirl. In it, she tells him that he shames the memory of his family, that she knows everything about him and will take him down, and basically dares him to meet her at a park. In dramatic fashion, the showdown happens in a hall of mirrors. Batgirl, clearly having learned from the previous time that she faced Mirror, takes her time and attacks strategically. She is able to break his face mask, and then she starts an elaborate slideshow of the accident that killed his family. Distraught and distracted, since the images are all over him, Batgirl finally takes him down. Later that evening, Babs and Elysia trade gifts, with Elysia receiving a Joeway ceramic cooking knife and Babs getting a statue of something. As the doorbell rings, we are left with the strangest of cliffhangers as Barbara Gordon Sr. shows up on the doorstep. Yeah, with that soak in for you. Uh, the opening scene, most especially the first page, I think is really powerful and brings home the mixed feelings and the doubts that Babs is feeling surrounding her, her refound lakes. And I applaud Simone for this, this layout here and the direction given uh, to uh, see off. Making Babs seem an emotionally aloof character seems forced. You know, she starts talking about some cure, but can't make it all the way. Why? It seems like talking about a mother walking out on her would be more difficult to discuss than this potentially, like, joyous thing that happened to her. It's great to see Babs fighting perps, but, you know, if the entire purpose of the scene was to get Babs to have a brainstorm, couldn't there have been a better way? You know, one that does not distract from the main story at hand. I've actually thought about the letter that Babs leaves for Mirror, you know, uh, probably more than one, one would, you know, just for a fictional... Um, piece of, of literature here. I, I just don't see this as being something she would do. Yes, you know, she is being intentionally cruel in order to antagonize him, but it seems like she's overstepping the ethical line, even when it, you know, involves a villain. Like, really attacking this, like, really kind of soft spot, this weakness, um, this wound that he has. It seems too much. It doesn't seem like the Babs uh, that we know and love. Could there have been another way? I enjoyed the Hall of Mirrors scene, and I thought that it was clever the way that Babs took him down. You know, what better way than to use the mirror against himself and go right for his emotions? The exchange of gifts later on in this issue seems weird, given the fact that they, they've they not been living together that long. And the evidence I cite is that Babs still has unopened boxes in her room. And Babs cannot even talk to her roommate about the day she got her legs back, but they can apparently exchange gifts? I mean, are they really close enough to share gifts? And I, I don't know. Plus, Babs would have had to have gotten the knife that day since she just found out about Elysia's past desire to be a chef. It seems a little, I don't know, serendipitous. Oh, boy. And let's talk about this random arrival of Barbara Gordon Sr. Number one, it seems like she was just mentioned in Babs' speech earlier on so that this appearance would not be so out of left field. But guess what, guys? It's still out of left field. Uh, number two, how does she even know where Babs lives? She would have had to have uh, to 
could go to Jim, and I'm quite sure he would have called his daughter. And knowing what I know now from Batgirl number five, she did not call Jim. So again, how did she find her daughter? Uh, overall, you know, I think this is probably the best issue that we've seen so far, but there are still miles uh, to go to get to the right characterization of Babs. Again, it seems like her voice is off, and the attempted clever remarks made during her narration don't really go over well. They aren't clever, and it just seems like Babs is talking to talk, and that's not how it should be. Uh, you know, Steph kind of you know, talk to talk uh, a little bit, and she had her own narration, but it really went over smoothly, and you fell in love with the character because of the, this her quirky personality from that. So, I don't know. It, Babs and Steph, they're very different from each other, is all I have to say. And if one is being patterned on the other, that's not the way to go about it. Seven out of ten bats. Next up, we have Birds of Prey number four, Absolutely Mental. Writer Dwayne Swarzynski, artist... Jesus Saez, colors June Chung. As the issue picks up right where the previous left off, the birds are in a major pickle on a train. The mystery antagonist is whispering sweet nothings and a nursery rhyme in Dinah's ear. And just as Dinah is ready to sacrifice her life by leaping out of the train in order to save the lives of those on the train, Starling pulls her in and tells her there is another way to stop the detonation of Dinah's brain bomb. Crack! Dinah wakes up with Zac Efron looking at her, a black and blue eye, and Starling waving a broken hand at her. It looks like Zac Efron, a.k.a. Trevor Cahill, the lab tech that we first met in issue number two, has found a way to disable the experimental stroke treatment drug. This lights a fire under Dinah, since this gives the team a way to stop the bad guys. Before leaving, Cahill considers reporting Dinah, backs off, and then asks her to have a drink with him. Then takes that back after realizing that probably mixing alcohol with that stroke drug is not a good idea. Poor Trevor. As Dinah and Ev run out, Ev fills Dinah in on what happened post-fist-to-jaw action. Ivy was struggling to stop the train due to a pile-on of bad guys. Katana distracts those bad guys by somehow leading them out onto the top of the train. Starling finds Ivy standing all cool and composed in a car and quickly realizes that it's not really Ivy. But not before getting stabbed in the arm. Ivy does manage to stop the train, Katana knocks out the judge, and Ev goes for the press aid, all the while Ivy does her creepy toxic seduction on a guy who may or may not be Donovan's brother. Ev continues to explain to Dinah that the creeps in the invisible suits are called the cleaners, and they work for Choke, a guy into mind control experiments. The judge and the aide weren't walking bombs, but were actually broadcasting everything they saw and heard and were undetectable to all bug sweepers and anti-spy gear. As Ev's story wraps up, we see all the birds meeting on the roof of the partial address that Ivy was able to collect from, well, Donovan's brother. Well, look who's here. Na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na, Batgirl. Oh, and she's happy to help? Each of the five team members find her own way into a seemingly empty floor. But wait, there's more. And if you call now, you will receive one laser, which will stop bending the light around the suits of the cleaners and reveal that there is an entire army of them surrounding you. As the birds make a tight circle, Batgirl gives orders, a voice whispers in their ears, and poof, they are out on the street with no memory of this situation. Whew. Oh man, I'm I'm loving this book, and I I still feel so bad 
<laughs> that I thought, oh, this is not going to be a good book in the DC New. Uh, and, man, I mean in those words, but they taste good. That's fine. Um... <sighs> I, I laughed when I saw Av say there's another way and then clock Dinah. Uh, you know, because it was totally unexpected. You were, I you would think there was another way, but not that. We are, I, f- I feel like we're really trying to force Trevor Cahill on Dinah, uh, you know, aren't we? At least he does actually question Dinah and why she took the experimental drug. That m- makes logical sense for someone to actually do that, so I'm glad we didn't skip over that. Though he does seem to be obviously easily distracted when he, he asks her out on a date. We have had many backflashes, I think, as of late in other books uh, throughout, especially the Bat Family, which is primarily where I'm reading. But I think that this one works really well. You know, if we are consistently following Dinah's perspective, it's only right that we would miss many events after she was punched out. As Starling goes back for us, we get to experience the action from someone else's point of view. I like seeing all the different birds with their respective struggles, and then Ev's assumption of Ivy's evil tendencies uh, come to bite her in the butt, certainly. Okay, so in my comic reading history, I've seen someone throw a punch with a bad arm, CF, which means reference, Cassandra versus Shiva, but, you know, she didn't smile while doing it, and Ev would have at least shown... Um, some pain while punching out the press aid. But, you know, at least she does warn him that it will take a couple of hits. And that guy was acting like a jerk, so he totally deserves what he got. I am still sensing an issue here with the judge, his supposed age and his depiction. Remember that I, that piece of paper was in the 40s. It sh- he should be around, it was, it was 1946. Should be should have looked like a 77-year-old man, but he does not. You know, the plot thickens, human bugs, and uh, let's not talk about human centipede. Please do not look that up. I beg of you. You will be forever. You will never forget it. And you will pray to God that you, or wish to God that you had not looked at that. So please. But anyways, uh, bugs like surveillance. This is really getting interesting. And I wonder whether there is a bigger agency involved and how bad this could get for the birds that are obviously on the other side of the law. Okay, Batgirl all of a sudden coming onto the team, and now she's happy. This doesn't really make sense given her reaction uh, to the invitation in issue one. And, you know, where does she come off giving orders? Isn't Dinah the team leader? Wasn't Babs the one who turned her down? And does Batgirl really have all that much field knowledge to be directing the team in the first place? I loved seeing the different ways that the birds entered the building. I liked seeing Starwing using her smarts with the lasers. And, you know, the ending, man, I'm totally thrown for a loop just like the birds, which is, you know, it's great to be in their perspective as well. Nine out of ten birds loving it. Next up we have Huntress number four of six, Crossbow at the Crossroads, part four. Writer Paul Levitz, penciler Marcus Toe, inkers John Dell and Richard Zajac, and colorist Andrew Dahlhaus. The issue opens up with Helena in a boat in the Mediterranean thinking about how much she loves Italy. She speeds towards Moretti's boat and tries to use her feminine wiles to get aboard. Unfortunately, she picks the one guard who actually does his job, and he says no. But he does offer to meet up with her that night and comments on her bruised neck, which happened when the lion had his large claws around her neck in the previous issue. Helena meets up with Christina and Alessandro at Amalfi, and they discuss her bruises, but Helena says that she is just a woman with a bruise when she is not wearing a mask. Alessandro tells Helena about the town and points out that the season ends soon. 
Helena adds that this could be a good place for the chairman to arrive from Kufra since it is more isolated than Pompeii and Moretti already has a room at the main hotel. After some mid-afternoon snacking at a pastry shop, Helena goes to work as Huntress and spies on Moretti and Aben Hassan, just as Alessandro tries to get a statement from the ambassador about the chairman's arrival from Kufra. As Huntress surveils, Moretti and Ibn Hassan speak about the future politics of Kufra and obviously do some uh, unsavory things since Helena nearly becomes physically ill. She plants a bug, gets spotted by the polizia, and scrams. Elsewhere at Kufra, the chairman is traveling towards a large boat sent for him and explains to his younger son his responsibilities and that he must listen and be guided by his elder brother. Back in Italy, Christina, Alessandro, and Helena have lunch together, speak of their friendship and the secrets that Helena has. They end the lunch with Helena obliquely talking about her plan and resolving to take down the chairman and Moretti. That night, attached to the boat, Huntress thinks about the odds against her and makes her move. She plants a device on the communication tower so that there is interference on all radio channels. And after running through her plan of attack, she takes a short catnap wakes up Troy before dawn, and goes to work. She dumps the fuel, stops the engine, and quickly dispatches the guards that come down when the alarm sounds. She gets caught off guard when there are some other goons that arrive, but she recovers, takes them down, and wipes the smug smile off of Moretti's face. She throws a rope to the three girls and leaves him to their mercy. Christina and Alessandro pick up Huntress, patch her up, tell her that the chairman arrived while she was out, and ask her what she did. Helena explains that she left justice to its own course, just as the polizia arrived to take over the boat. So the biggest problem that I have with this particular issue is that all of a sudden, Alessandro and Christina know that Helena and Huntress are one and the same, which is fine, okay, because no one would think, or I mean, because one would think that a reporter could indeed put two and two together, but I feel like there was no lead up to it. Uh, the first three issues just assume that no one knows about her and then she mentions it all nonchalantly while talking about the bruises on her neck from the lion where did this come from i also wonder you know what is with the conversation between helena christina and alessandro on the whole secrets thing uh you know obviously they know a lot about her given the fact they know she's huntress so i'm not really sure what else she could be keeping from them or why they're worried and if you look, this is one of the details that I kind of noticed here. Why does Helena look at a cat as she talks about her complicated life? Is this symbolic of something? Now, I'm going to take a, a a gamble here, and I'm going to say that she is the daughter of Catwoman. Uh, now, before you think I'm grasping at straws, please realize this is the second time she has talked about cats, and the first time it happened in issue number three. She was in Pompeii. Some, some dogs were, were there, and they were barking at her. She gives them a look. They run away, and then she bends down and, and pets a cat and says, I was, I'm more of a cat person anyway. And to be honest, now that we know that there is a World's Finest comic coming out with Huntress and Power Girl from Earth 2, I think that this is a very real possibility. Okay, now, I had a debate with somebody, and his name is Donovan, about a particular panel, a lewd panel, uh, that is very hidden in the details. And, now, I, I've looked at this several times, and I, I have gone back and forth between a bloody nose or something else, that something else being related to Catullus number 80. Again, do not look that up. And I guess I, I will go along with... I can, 
See the well. Oh, there is a bruise there. Now that I'm looking at it more, I mean, I don't like to think of like dirty thought. Like that is not the first thing that comes to my mind. But you know, just like given uh, the the position of the the spray, and uh, which you know it's blood, and um, I don't know. And she wasn't holding her nose. But you know, Donovan did say that they they wouldn't put something that bad in a comic. They have been rough. Uh, they, as in Moretti uh, and his and Ibn Hassan, have been somewhat rough with with these girls. So it is believable. But really, it made me pause. Um, and I guess that's almost shocking if you think about it, because where have comics gone from when? I don't know. Could they, I, I feel like they could have been considered wholesome at one time and really having moral moral lessons to them and, and, and being overall, like, ethical and, and, and uh, a positive and uplifting. Where have they gone where you double check and, and you stare at a panel and you think about the possibilities of what something could be? That in itself is a little disturbing. And I don't know. I guess I blame Starfire and the current Red Hood and the Outlaws. I blame Catwoman in issues one and two of the new Catwoman. I blame Harley Quinn in, what was it, Suicide, Suicide Squad number four. Oh, I don't know. Where has the world gone? But that's my little, I guess, rant right there. I I do wonder why Helena takes a cat nap. I think that's kind of dumb and dangerous. Why would you do that? I mean, seriously, if, I don't know. I'm okay with cat naps, but I don't know if I could trust myself to get up. Bam, right like that. And then, you know, after all the stuff with the BP oil spill two summers ago, Helena decides to dump a few hundred gallons of diesel fuel and hope that it disperses in the sea. What? I do like the intimidating bat shadow that we see at one point in the art, you know, kind of. And we're also getting a shimmer of the Huntress that we are definitely used to, uh, a more violent and intimidating Huntress. Why does Helena trust the Polizia to take Moretti in? Hasn't she already seen that they are on the payroll as, you know, issue three? And then why why are everyone's favorite Italian reporters now all of a sudden involved in Helena's nightlife? I swear their involvement has gone from zero to sixty in no time flat, and that is my main my main issue there. Uh, but you know, I, I nine out of ten can always. Um, it it was still good despite this issue with um, with the uh, the reporters knowing the secret and having no background to that. It was still good. Okay, next up, Batman Inc. Leviathan Strikes, and I'm only doing Chapter 1 uh, because of Stephanie, so I don't even want, like, if you want to know what happens in Chapter 2, please listen to TBU, uh, the comic cast. Poor Joe. It was it was a tough thing for him to, to recap that. It was a tough thing for me to read, too. I felt like, oh, I didn't know what was going on. Anyways, Batman Inc. Leviathan Strikes Chapter 1, The School of Night. And these events all take place before Flashpoint and the new 52. Writer Grant Morrison, artist Cameron Stewart. The issue begins with Stephanie Brown and another girl, both in their school uniforms, complete with a tie and a noose. Surrounding them are many girls with skull masks and candles chanting, All Hail Leviathan. As we flash back a month to Steph's arrival at St. Hadrian's, the principal, a.k.a. Madonna, welcomes her and critiques her posture all in one. The class gets back to work talking about a Mark II fragmentation hand grenade. In the locker room, getting ready for gym class, one student after another 
pulls a gun on Steph, asking her if she is the daughter of Batman. She exclaims that if she were, she would have sold his ID to the highest bidder. Says girls with guns don't scare her and takes out the main girl with the beauty mark. Stephanie is ready for a fight when the gym teacher, a.k.a. Rihanna, comes in and takes down Steph. Outside the principal's office, Steph is looking up info on the girl with the beauty mark when the girl sitting next to her tells her that the girl is Una Claremont, the Olympic gold medalist gymnast. She was personally selected by Miss Delizias to test the Leviathan tech. The girl sitting with Steph tells her that they are either in trouble or they are going to be recruited into the elite. Oh, and apparently her father is the highwayman. While Steph gets increasingly annoyed having to wait their turn, inside the office the principal is talking to the headmistress about Steph and her qualifications. At gun training class, the teacher, a.k.a. Lady Gaga, praises them for their marksmanship, all at the crotches of G the Green Lantern, Superman, and Flash, and sends them on their way. Later, Steph considers the girls, what their employers will be, and what creepy things they talk about. At night, Steph as Batgirl prepares for what lies ahead. The next day, Lady Gaga, Rihanna, the first teacher we met, a.k.a. Katy Perry, and Madonna all watch as Steph battles six girls on their, her own. It looks like this impresses the administration as she and her friend both get invitations to the elite. At that night's ceremony, the son of Pig, um, as master of ceremony, shows that after tonight, they will not be able to feel any pain, will follow directions, and be in tune with Leviathan's song, all after eating a wafer. After eating said wafer, the two new girls get a noose thrown around their necks and accused of betraying the secrets of the school. Before anything can happen to the other girls, Steph goes into action, distracts Pig and the other girls, rescues her classmate, and goes out through the roof, quickly changing into her backroll garb. As Pig and the girls run out after her, they find the skin of the gardener but discover that it is not skin, but a mask. And down comes Batman from the tree, takes out Pig, and watches with pride as Batgirl shows off her skill. Batman weaves Steph just as the other faculty arrive and tells her to meet him in the headmistress's office. Once there, Batman tells the principal that the school is done and soon so shall Leviathan be. As Madonna points a crossbow at Batman, saying that he will be the last that man-killing crossbow will take out, Miss Hexley is taken out from behind by Batgirl. Oh, chapter one. It was fun. It was inspired. I loved it. It was just, oh man, it was so great seeing Steph in her Batgirl garb again. You know, she used her wits and she still showed her positive attitude. The setting in the girls' school was sinister, and I feel like it could have, it definitely could have a potential to be an intriguing ongoing, you know, though that will never happen. It also reminds me, you know, of the 60s show that I'm watching right now, you know, when Batman, Robin, and Batgirl all travel to London and see a girls' school that really trains them to be thieves. Uh, it just really resonates there. I loved seeing Steph's confidence level, and the ending was just great. I, I also thought it was funny seeing the girls and their target practices. And if you didn't notice, I mean, there was a reason why I was calling them Madonna, Katy Perry, Lady Gaga, and Rihanna. It's because those teachers were indeed modeled after those pop stars, so that was pretty inventive. But I definitely give this um, 10 out of 10 gooperings for Steph and it just makes me miss her all the more. Now I'm not going to give you a synopsis on Nightwing number 4 uh, written by Kyle Higgins. It is a crossover basically with Batgirl number 3 uh, albeit certainly a better crossover. Um, it is better written. Um, this is more in character Batgirl. I love the interactions between the two even though it's a little strange that they're changing in front of one another on the train. 
it, it is a little weird how easy their interaction is, given the fact that she was beating him up and giving the hair. There is no reference to the hair. But Kyle Higgins does, you know, do a better job than uh, Simone did in in Batgirl. And I'll say it again, I feel like they did this in these two particular books because DC right now uh, does not want um, this couple to be together. And so, you know, what better way than to explain it in, in two different books why they're not going to be together. Uh, but again, love the interaction. I thought, just you know, they, they spoke easily to one another and they had just a, a great camaraderie. Um, which which makes me miss it. So I'm just hoping that the future holds, you know, sh- some shipping for them, and that it's not all going to be, oh my gosh, I just had a bad idea about Starfire. Uh, that it's not just um, going to be keeping them away from one another. That would just be disappointing. Wow, that was a lot of reviews. My throat is dry. Actually, my throat kind of hurts after that one voice, and the, like the first voice, but. Batman Family Letters. I'm never doing that one again. The Smoker from the Bronx. Or from Brooklyn. Uh, The next segment I have is Babs in the Tube. Uh, If you remember, this is where I examine an individual appearance of Barbara Gordon in the media, whether it be TV or film. And right now I'm watching the 66 Batman series. This is episode 106, season 3, episode 12, The Foggiest Notion. It aired November 30th, 1967, starring Adam West as Bruce Wayne slash Batman, Bird Ward as Dick Grayson slash Robin, Neil Hamilton as Commissioner Jim Gordon, Stafford Rep as Chief O'Hara, Alan Napier as Alfred Pennyworth, and Yvonne Craig as Barbara Gordon slash Batgirl. Guest starring Maurice Dalymore as Watson, Joe Abdullah as Fagan, Lynn Peters as Prudence, Harvey Jason as Scudder, Larry Antony as Digby, Aleda Rotel as Daisy, Nanette Turner as Sheila, Stacy Gregg as Rosamond, Lindley Lawrence as Kit, Gwyneth Johns as Lady Penelope Peasoup, Rudy Valet as Lord Marmaduke Fogg, and Gilchrist Stewart as the Bobby. Batman quickly dispenses with the fog bomb with a general emergency bat extinguisher, then returns with Robin to Venerable Ireland Yard to warn Commissioner Gordon and Superintendent Watson of their suspicions of the Lord and his lady. While there, they are sent a clue that leads them to a pub on the docks called the Three Bells. Barbara Gordon, in the meantime, plans to join Fogg's teaching staff. Down at the docks, the dynamic duo find a ship containing priceless mod materials and patterns from Barnaby Street. In the pub, Batman is captured inside by Fogg and his henchmen, while the underage Robin, barred from the pub, overrun by hippies and mod people, and left outside in the Batmobile to guard the ship, is swept away by Lady Peasoup and her henchwoman after severing the ship's mooring line and setting it free. Back on the road outside Fogg Estate, the caped crusaderess Batgirl rendezvous with Alfred and, voicing her suspicions about Fogg and Peasoup, proceeds to investigate the Cricket Pavilion and, having a little more luck, discovers stolen loot stored by Fogg's. However, she is detected by Lady Prudence, who immediately immobilizes her in a cloud of paralyzing gas. Convinced his sister has secured the ship, Lord Fogg has the boy wonder moved to the winch room at the Tower Bridge, where he is tied to the winch that opens and closes the bridge. Batman uses the back computer to locate Robin just as the winch starts to raise the bridge and, using his anti-mechanical bat ray, manages to stop the bridge and rescue Robin from death in the Tower of Londinium. Together they battle Lord Fogg, Scudder, Basil, and Digby, but Fogg escapes by creating yet another cloud of man-made mist with his pipe of fog. Okay, number one, I really don't see how Batman can be the world's greatest detective but not realize that Barbara Gordon and Batgirl are one and the same. It's gone on for far too long. Will they ever figure it out? I have no idea. 
Have you ever noticed how Batman is very calm with bombs? I mean, he deals with them as if it were just, you know, something to clean up, some sort of mess. I do wonder how Lord Fogg knew that Batman would escape the smoke bomb in the makeshift Batcave uh, because, you know, he sends that clue to them via Barbara, but what if they weren't there? What if he thought the fog had incapacitated them? I don't know. That kind of seems like a stretch right there. Okay, this is a role model that we need. Batman would not allow Robin to go into the bar. You know, what a great mentor. In the bar fight, I found it so amusing how obvious the the bad guy is that goes around and picks up a bottle in order to hit Batman in the back, which, you know, doesn't happen. He's just that obvious. And then this fight literally turns all of a sudden. You know, Batman had them up against the ropes, and then he's cornered. Oh, boy. And what can I say about those girls all over Robin? Oh, man. Very unsettling. Very unsettling. And apparently this is not Dustin's Batman because he is not fighting the mind control well. But I am glad that Alfred is always prepared. He's bringing the Recollection Cycle Bat Restorer and the Batmobile Bat Tracker. What better tools to have than that? Okay, so when Batgirl is paralyzed and Rama is captured, I want to know why these, these bad guys are not trying to figure out their secret identities. They're right there. Just pull their mask off. I, I feel like you'd get even more money than those eggs via the uh, blackmail that you could do. And then Robin calls one of the guys a sadist. <laughs> what is a sadist? I'm pretty sure you may have meant sadist. Uh, a little little interesting. You know, this episode ends on a cliffhanger once again, and I'm pretty sure this is one of the longest stories there has been. It's been entertaining, and again, I, I see parts of this story reverberate in Leviathan, to be sure. Okay, the next segment we have is Shipper Spotlight. I love shippers. Let me tell you about shippers. Get over your own shipping bullshit. Let, let me tell you about shippers. <laughs> get over get get over your own shipping bullshit. Shipper. I love shippers. 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 Let me tell you about shippers. Be not talking about that. Ship shippers. I love shippers. Dick and Babs. Dick 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 and Babs. Batman and Cat Catwoman. There we go for the shippers. Batman's marinary to the Joker. To the Joker. There better not be Damien Seth 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 any shippers. I'll kill them. Dick and Babs. Now if you remember, Shipper Spotlight is a segment where under 120 seconds. I give you a couple, I tell you their history, their first hint of romance, and whether they are hot or not. What is the couple this time? Well, it is none other than Cassandra Kane and Superboy, a.k.a. Connor Kent. First hint of romance. They first meet in Superboy number 85 when Tim and Connor both get a call to give back up to Batgirl. Within the issue, the two are even tied up together by Dr. Sin. The issue ends with Superboy asking Batman for half of the punishment that Batgirl is about to receive, and he really cements a potential friendship with her. 
Then, over in Batgirl, uh, Volume 1, Number 40, Babs forces, yes, forces Cass to go on a cruise as a vacation. Not only does Superboy, a.k.a. Carl, show interest in Cass, but we also have the returning character, Ty Darshan, making advances toward her as well. While Cass seems more attracted towards Ty Darshan and even more annoyed towards Superboy and his Kid Flash-like talking, she does end up kissing Superboy after he tells her to call him if she is ever in Smallville. In the next issue, number 41, she does visit him in Smallville, sneaking into his room, kissing him, being hidden under the bed when Mrs. Kent walks in, kissing him in the sky, fighting a misunderstood alien, and then all coming to the conclusion that they are better as friends. Hot or not, even though they share one last kiss in number 41, they both decide that they are better as friends, and that is exactly what they need. Cass is either destined to be alone and step into Batman's shoes, or she will find someone that fits her better than Connor. Hot or not, not. Uh, remember, I'm always taking recommendations. I do have a, a short list of things that will keep me occupied for a little while. But uh, always looking for strange and unusual things that are not slash. Remember that, people. Uh, my literary recommendation, again, focusing on the comics this year, Ultimate Spider-Man. And I'm talking volume one right now. I'm on about issue, I'm have, ooh, maybe 56 or so. I'm trying to think about this. Just finished like the, the Black Cat arc. Uh, I'm really loving it. I really enjoy it. Love seeing this, you know, youthful Peter Parker. I love Mary Jane and her characterization. Of course, I'm a big shipper. I love them together. I was heartbroken when they broke up, and now they're back together. I am told that there's going to be another breakup, and I'm... I'm uh, preparing myself for that. But no, it's just really, it's a fun read. When I got to the Green Goblin and Norman Osmond stuff, man, that was some heavy stuff. It was really intense. But I certainly recommend it. I know that it's it's give and take. No, it's touch and go, I guess I should say, with this latest USM with um, Miles Morales. I know that some people love it and some people don't. But if you want to give Ultimate Spider-Man a try, I, I really recommend uh, this this early volume. I always recommend, or I always regretted not picking it up when it was originally out. I remember being, you know, around the comic book store and being with my mom, obviously being uh, younger, and uh, she asked, you know, do you want to start this or whatever. I think it was very, very early on, like probably issue nine, probably not even issue nine, like five. It was very, very early. And uh, just like, oh, no, because it'd be tough to get the first, you know. Uh, but I always regretted that. I actually have an Ultimate Spider-Man poster above me right now. It was for issue 100, and it was obviously during the Clone uh, Saga if we can call it that. And there's just like hundreds of Spider-Man around one of my favorite posters. Well, I feel like this show, oh my word, I am, I'm exhausted from this show. It was so long. But I, I hope you enjoyed it. Man, it was all over the place, up and down. I hope you don't feel um, bipolar by any means. Remember to send any questions or comments to Batgirl to Oracle at gmail.com. Send in your questions for Mr. Dwayne Swarzynski. Continue to sign the petition to get Batgirl Year One back into production. Now you've got another petition to sign to get the Batgirl DLC for Arkham City. Please also go to the Kickstarter campaign for uh, Donovan, uh, Josh Bertoni's friend. That That is, oh man, like less than $600 away from their goal. And it's the end of February, I believe, is the... Uh, the the end and if they don't get it to their goal they don't get any of the money that people have decided to back up I believe that is true um, Josh can write in if he said if if that is completely wrong 
Once again, thanks Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Thanks also to TV.com for the episode summary for The Foggiest Notion. Whew. I hope you had a wonderful Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Great respect to that man. He accomplished a lot for this country, and I'm very thankful for, for people like that. Uh, so thank you to Dr. King for sure. Until next time, that is, if I'm still around after that threat from Heather Glenn, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?